We'll begin this evening's talk with uh, a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Buddha. With well, He wasn't the Buddha yet. With Siddhartha Gautama. So, as though over 2,500 years ago, we're all there, sitting with Siddhartha. And close your eyes and settle in. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the Bodhi tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed and aversion and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama. These arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver. The arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think that you have the right to be sitting here? To be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest in a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and the cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gota sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability and an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always exactly (laughs) quite like the Buddha did on that night over 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with great sincerity and determination. At home alone, 
maybe with your sangha, your practice community, wherever that is, and now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that is one of the most fundamental underlying factors of our practice, mindfulness. That, of course, is intimately connected to the wise attention that Annie spoke about uh, a couple of evenings ago. And as we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. And in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So now just take a couple of moments to drop into the body with a bright and easy attention, relaxing from head to toe. And letting the whole body, the heart, and the mind deeply relax into simple presence. And with an open heart, simply hearing. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion and impartiality and renunciation. The very conditions that we have here on retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm, concentrated mind are key factors for the heart, the mind, to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, really the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors that are necessary for liberation. 
the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. The mother and the chief. (laughs) We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. (laughs) And when it really, really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. I mentioned uh, what seemed like a long time ago on the first evening of this retreat that the Pali word for mindfulness is sati, sometimes translated as memory or to remember, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditionings to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dharma Dharma discussion with friends, someone asked, What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? It's a very good question because it's become quite a common word in our culture. And in fact, so common, which is a good thing on one level, on another level, it's lost some of its depth, some of its potency has dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? the great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing the body and mind. Meaning, (laughs) absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, or how we think it should be, or how we think it could be. Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With the great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way that it really is, which may appear so clear and simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a very fresh, connected intimacy, to come close 
and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a a kind of sticky, fixed connection. Mindful attention is clear, fluid. And it lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. This is the flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness is sometimes uh, spoken up of as awareness, and Annie and I use those words to some degree interchangeably. I think some clarity may be gained from uh, talking about mindfulness as the active aspect of awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that because I think it's not our regular way to attend to present moment experience. It's not our conditioned way. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention to a a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving the body, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We uh, pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with, And we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, that might be difficult to be with. We open to it all, no parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not like, well, I could really be mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or, I know I could really be mindful if I didn't feel so much anger or so much sadness or so much pain. And I know I could be mindful if I wasn't sick. I know I could be mindful if I felt better. And I'm absolutely sure I could be mindful if I wasn't so caught up in thought or so attracted to and attached to beauty. And there's many more possibilities of how we think we could be really mindful if we were or weren't this or that. Mindfulness is about living in the action, we could say. Living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind. Living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self in what is. So then there's just 
what is without anything added or needing to be added and without taking anything away or needing to take away anything. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking that I'm, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. In fact, the moment that we think I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating, we could say, a sense of a separate self creating a separation, creating a disconnection from the reality of the way of things, and living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living in the action. Sometimes practitioners think of mindfulness as a kind of magic. I've been told this a number of times. Though not the magician's magic that in fact creates an illusion and then pulls us into this illusion, pulls us into this delusion. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion directly into reality. And without it, we're bound. Without it, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity and attachment to these clearly not seen appearances. The result being that, in fact, then we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. So again, some words from Krishnamurti. If we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are or where we live, all of us, want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And I think it's fair to say that most of us hope and maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given given time is pretty permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we harbor a hope that our life will be very deeply fulfilling. We want life to suit our passing fancies, our our expectations, our deepest desires. And it's in relationship to this that most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experience. By getting this or that, him or her, doing this and that, and going here and there. And we go for, we try, try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and our thoughts, as well as through the myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our life. 
And some of the time we know, at least intellectually, that none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely. Look closely to see, feel, and know our experience directly. (coughs) And it's through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really, truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect, right, or useful moment than the one that we're in, we have really, truly, and wholly embraced our life and, in fact, then infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of intimacy. The very deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which, as practice develops and expands and matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound heart connection with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the present moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment, in this present moment, in this present moment? This is the basic foundation of all Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in, is in, is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to present moment experience is what allows the clarity and true understanding or insight to arise. To really just simply and naturally arise. Which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was teaching a weekly class uh, about mindfulness here in Taos at the little meditation center in town. And every week 
<clears throat> people would come in and share an experience at the beginning of the class about something that had occurred uh, in their daily life in relationship to what we were um, practicing and studying. And one evening a student came in and she said that that morning she had been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden hundreds of times. But she said that morning it felt like it was the first time. It was as though the first time that she'd watered her garden. And then she said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? And she went on to say, terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. Which really um, woke us up in that class for those moments at least. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. Without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. And we experience life through the filters of ideas, of preconceptions, opinions fears, judgments, similar past experiences. One aspect of our incredibly comprehensive practice is to bring a mindful attention, in fact, to these very filters themselves. Meditation practice grounded in concentrated mindful awareness is about bringing everything into clear, sharp focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment and with a mind that's fresh, what's often called beginner's mind. So a simple personal story that some of you have heard before bear with me. <laughs> uh, some years ago, uh, one of my, when my, one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, and his mother and I were uh, taking a walk with him. They lived in Pennsylvania at the time, and we were walking down behind their house into a, a thickly wooded area. <clears throat> and my little grandson saw a pine cone on the ground for the first time. He'd never seen a pine cone before. He picked it up. They had just moved to Pennsylvania. He picked it up, and he looked at it, carefully turning it every which way, put it up to his nose, smelled it all over every which way, put it into his, towards his ear, listened, stuck his tongue out, licked it, investigating, getting to know this whatever it is clearly, fully, truly. And then his mother and I, as a good mother and grandmother should, said, this is a pine cone. (laughs) And he looked up, up at us kind of quizzically, but as a good boy should, repeated the word, pine cone. Okay, pine cone, you know. And then he very dutifully, uh, or not very dutifully, but very 
interestedly went back to experiencing this pine, so-called pine cone with his very fresh, open beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe more accurately, relearn, to bring into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and healing. This month of practice will offer you many opportunities to meet and to engage in experience with this fresh, open, beginner's mind. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine, the best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense, well as in freedom from the sickness of confusion and anguish and fear, freedom from the relentless wanting that stems from ongoing satisfaction. Make us well, as in freedom from suffering. In the teachings, there are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And this evening, we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it, but just the body in the body. And of course, there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful and wise attention to. And as you know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breathing is potentially profound. And in making this very, the very simple sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils or the sensorial experience of breath as it moves in and through and out the whole body or the sensations of the rising and falling movement of breath in the belly is really a, a very important and basic ground of mindful attention. I've been deeply grateful and actually at times even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and the mind that happens as well as what comes to be seen and understood with a simple, careful, and wise attention to the direct experience of breath. So now just for a moment... Uh, If your eyes aren't closed, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or 
the simple sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils, or the sensations and movement of the breath that when it comes in and moves through and out the whole body. Mindfully absorb into this without any self or with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? And it's really important to notice this without judgment, to notice without self-recrimination, just simply noticing how it is. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. And as a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensation or as movement or maybe as vibration in the area of the body that where we connect with the breath. Noticing it maybe right from its beginning and staying with it all the way through to its end. And maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of an exhalation and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may simply notice the movement of the in and out breath at the nostrils or the belly or through the whole body. Just noticing this, which in fact helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet and tranquil and peaceful breath and an overall body-mind calm. That's really a very fine support towards developing a more refined mindful attention. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a a closer, more intimate, ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. Sitting, standing, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting, carrying even bringing mindful attention of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking up out of sleep. Who's moving? Who's lying down? 
is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is, in itself. Can standing be known just simply as standing? Sitting just simply as sitting? Walking just simply as walking? Without the layer of I am, or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc.? Once many years ago, <clears throat> one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensation? Well, for just a moment, uh, I was quite caught by the question, which in retrospect I decided was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly, after being caught briefly, um, during that practice interview, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Sayadaw. And the response was something like this. I don't remember exactly because it was a long time ago, but something like this. No, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm directly connected and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So, a good observation and question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body and the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step, or speak particular words. If we think and we feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separate, isolated I and me, we will eventually, or maybe sometimes quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred or many somethings built up that occurred in our immediate field of experience or in the past. 
as mindful awareness of bo- the body and the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, growing understanding of the subtler cause of suffering. And it begins to take hold, slowly. And this can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? A number of years ago now I had a student whose name was Roy, a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up into his dying moment. And he died of AIDS-related complications. I visited him, visited him in the hospital every day during the last part of his life. And one day I was sitting with him in the hospital in an afternoon, and he was lying in his bed. And at that point there wasn't much left of his body. And he was lying there and he stretched his arm up, slowly turning it, stretched it up overhead, and turning it, turning it around back and forth and looking at it very carefully and with great interest. And then, after a few minutes of doing this, he said, in a very cool and odd way, all he said was, Wow! The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, fresh and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. All 32 of them, as it's uh, taught in the classical Buddhist texts. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all the various internal organs and all of the fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known. 
such as the intestine or the bladder, the heart, the lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice is one that isn't often, very often taught here in the West, though it can be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification of and with this body as being a solid entity, as being mine, as being me. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body even during this first week of the retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified are you, for instance, with the hair on your head or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive process therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all of the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and even concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual idea of solidity and identification with one's own body and other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So just consider for a moment now, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this this, uh, for a moment in relationship to yourself, I'm a woman, or I'm a man. I'm thin, or fat, or not too thin, or not too fat. I'm tall, or short, or of average height. I'm good-looking, I'm handsome, I'm beautiful, 
ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin, I have light skin. I have good skin, I have bad skin. My nose is large or too big or small. I have a cute nose. (laughs) I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years or just within days or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities. Really, there's no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. Another important and potentially profoundly insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more? Nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of the body as a solid, static entity and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form. One aspect of the reality of how it really is. How or what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, as it's classically called, or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, or wind. Through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations, when you're sitting and when the body's moving and within the discernment of the breath and also when you're lying down anytime. So the characteristics of each of these elements are this. The characteristics in terms of our sensorial experience of earth is hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. 
the sensorial experience of the element of water. The characteristics of that sensorially are flowing and cohesion. The sensorial characteristics of the element of fire, heat or warmth, coolness or or cool, coldness. The sensorial experience of the air element or the wind element is supporting and pushing. All and each of these bodily sensations are very readily available for us to experience and be mindful of in any moment. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body in its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. During one of our upcoming 815 to 915 sits that I'll be leading, um, we'll take some time to directly explore a few of these um, characteristics together one morning within the next few mornings. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly, maybe not something that we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is uh, that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds and other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once uh, when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, maybe um, good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal that was lying on the beach. And every single day for a month, I went down to that body and sat with it for a little while every day, observing and letting the process of decomposition and decay, letting it in, which which was, in this instance, was happening quite quickly because of it being helped along by the seagulls, 
who thought that the seal's decaying flesh was very delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until uh, fairly recently was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time <clears throat> when he was living in a monastery in Thailand and asked that he be able to spend a part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though he said uh, they were uh, quite reluctant about it, but they did let him go in. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included, very much included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, I think he said they were fully assaulted. And he said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present, and little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart. And as as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him in the morgue, And he mentioned that at one point he looked up at the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, stuck to the ceiling. And at first he said he found it quite puzzling. And then he very quickly realized that the very bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen. And it didn't. He was glad that it didn't. (laughs) He said that when he went back out on the street, that he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost, our own form. And also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong <clears throat> that most of the time we live, we live with an, an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and attachment to. For instance, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or simply taken for granted, familiar forms. I think that what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die, 
which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting, if we begin to see it closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not-so-subtle tension and stress in our heart, our mind, and our body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, our feelings, and our action begins with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body, to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is actually not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, an act of loving kindness, an act of metta. Maybe along with some equanimity and grace. This acceptance implies not fighting, not resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experiences of the body. And in such moments, we feel and know our activity as belonging to life. So, some very simple everyday examples. We might wash the dishes be mindfully present with it, and as an act of generosity and love. And in that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, feeling and knowing what the wrist is doing. We feel our body contract and turn away from very cold weather or very hot weather. And we catch ourselves, and consciously, with awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware may often be an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment and to feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. The relationship to various movement practices, for instance, that some of you might do. Stretching, yoga, tai chi, qigong. And with walking practice. And our ordinary everyday movements. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves. Not in a self-centered way, but as an act of loyalty, we could say. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. 
Someone once said, and it may uh, have been uh, Martha Graham, who was a famous uh, dancer and choreographer, said, the body is tremendously homesick for us and waits patiently for our return. Though we have, may have ignored its invitation for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training to really be fully alive, that we only lacked the determination to feel our aliveness. Yesterday afternoon, <clears throat> totally unexpectedly, I was offered a teaching from a tiny uh, two-month-old chihuahua, <laughs> the newest member of uh, the family of the woman who cuts my hair. And as I watched this a tiny configuration of liveliness, brightly playing with a larger dog, and then held this... Uh, this unselfconscious, warm, friendly, joyful little being in my hands. I immediately felt, uh, deeply felt, a, a visceral knowing run through my body and my heart and my mind of the essential aliveness of myself. And all of us, all of us life forms, all of us rupas. It was a very inspiring and illuminating and uplifting moment that has continued to reverberate since yesterday afternoon. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way. And because each one of us has experienced specific conditioning, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge in relationship to this conditioning for each of us. The treasures that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and simple universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, and clear comprehension to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered on the body. I'd like to close the evening's talk with um, some more words from the Buddha, a poetic teaching which is actually um, a wonderful and inspiring instruction for us uh, 
uh, from the Buddha that we can take uh, 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 offer ourselves any time. And this is uh, called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in her, him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.